When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the past 30 years, Care Heating and Cooling put you first. You are the reason they are open seven days a week. You are why they make it easy to schedule service at careheatingandcooling.com. Concern for your safety is why they check every gas furnace for carbon monoxide. It's because of you that their technicians are paid to fix your furnace and air conditioner, not sell you a new one. And if you do need a new furnace, their team will make sure you get exactly what you need at a cost that fits your budget. Care Heating and Cooling is committed to doing business right. Call them at 1-800-COOLING when you need a company you can trust. Southern Gothic is a podcast that explores the history behind some of the American South's darkest days, greatest mysteries, and most chilling ghost stories. I am the resurrection and the life of the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he would die, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though his body be destroyed, yet shall I see that. It was a cold, gloomy day in Baltimore on October 9th, 1848. The type of day befitting the funeral for a man as infamous is Edgar Allan Poe, the author of dark poems such as The Raven and macabre tales like The Fall of the House of Usher. Poe was only 40 years old when he passed away, but the cause of his death has remained a mystery since he drew his last breath. On the afternoon of October 3rd, a printer named Joseph Walker found the poet lying in a gutter outside of Ryan's Tavern in Baltimore, Maryland. Not only was Poe delirious and practically unconscious, but inexplicably, he was wearing cheap, mismatched clothes that Walker later discovered weren't even his. Unfortunately, Poe was in such a stupor that when asked if there was anyone who could be notified of his condition, he could hardly communicate anything at all. Although, he was able to get out the name of a colleague named Joseph E. Snodgrass. Snodgrass retrieved his friend that afternoon and brought him to the Washington College Hospital, where Poe was put under the care of Dr. John Joseph Moran. The great American author then spent much of the next few days either unconscious or experiencing sporadic fits of hallucinations. So when he passed on October 7, 1848, Edgar Allan Poe never had the chance to explain how or why he ended up in the gutter on that fateful day. Uh, the blessings cannot be numbered, if 
accept our prayers on behalf of thy servant Edgar and grants him an entrance into the land of light. Reverend Clem of the Caroline Street Methodist Episcopal Church presided over Poe's funeral, which took place at four o'clock in the afternoon on that gloomy Monday. But in spite of his fame, only a handful of folks showed up to the graveyard at Baltimore's First Presbyterian Church to pay their respects. This included Joseph Snodgrass, Poe's college classmate, Z. Collins Lee, and several of his relatives. The service only lasted three minutes and no eulogy was given. Poe was then buried in a cheap mahogany coffin in an unmarked grave near his grandfather. This is how the famed author was laid to rest, a funeral without celebration, as gloomy as that Baltimore day, and unfortunately, it only grew worse. That same day, Edgar Allan Poe's obituary was published in the evening edition of the New York Tribune. Edgar Allan Poe died in Baltimore on Sunday last. His was one of the very few original minds that this country has produced. In the history of literature, he will hold a certain position and a high place. By the public of the day, he is regarded rather with curiosity than with admiration. Many will be startled, but few will be grieved by the news. He had very few friends, and he was the friend of very few, if any. But his character and adventures were too remarkable, and his literary merits too indubitable to pass from the stage with the simple announcement already given. The family of Mr. Poe, we learn from Griswold's Poets and Poetry of America. The obituary was a fairly scathing rebuke of Poe's character, praising his literary genius, but at the same time, damning him for his arrogance, temper, and predilection for alcohol. The work was signed by a man named Ludwig, but in reality, it was authored by Rufus Griswold, one of Poe's rivals whom he had frequently written about negatively during his time as a literary critic. Griswold claimed that Poe had asked him to be his literary executor, and as a result, this obituary was the first in a series of actions that he took to malign Poe. Actions which are quite likely the genesis of that bitter, drunken, and lovesick character that the author continues to be portrayed as today. But that grating obituary included more than just a bristling takedown. It also included a poem that Griswold claims the deceased gave him, quote, just before he left New York recently, remarking that it was the last thing he had written. This work, which is made up of six short stanzas, outlines the forbidden love and tragic death of a beautiful young woman and the poem's namesake, Annabelle Lee. It was many and many a year ago, in a kingdom by the sea, that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. And this maiden, she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child, and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea. But we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabel Lee. 
with a love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that, long ago in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabel Lee, so that her high-born kinsmen came and bore her away from me to shut her up in a sepulcher in this kingdom by the sea. The angels, not half so happy in heaven, went envying her and me. Yes, that was the reason, as all men know in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of the cloud by night, chilling and killing my Annabelle Lee. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we, and neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabel Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabel Lee. And the stars never rise, but I feel the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabel Lee. And so, all the night tide, I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride, in the sepulchre there by the sea, in her tomb by the sounding sea. not long after Annabelle Lee's publication, several people came forth claiming to be the inspiration for this now classic work, which most agree is biographical. However, much like the mystery surrounding Edgar Allan Poe's death, the identity of this beautiful maiden remains unknown. But if you ask folks from down in Charleston, South Carolina, they just might disagree as according to local lore, the spirit of Annabelle Lee haunts one of the graveyards in their historic kingdom by the sea, an infamous apparition searching for her forbidden love. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. Y'all, I want to take a quick minute to tell you about one of my favorite nonprofit organizations here in Middle Tennessee. It's called Poster Nashville. Now, this organization supports people during times of housing or medical crises by providing compassionate, temporary care for their pets. That's right. Poster helps secure loving homes for beloved little furballs when their human companions are going through things that might otherwise cause them to have to give them up. But since Poster began back in 2020, they've been able to reunite nearly 250 pets with their loving pet parents after they were able to secure housing, keeping families together through tough times. Of course, y'all, I have to say from personal experience, it's been an awesome program to be around. My kids and I have been fortunate enough to hang out with some of the pups. And trust me, what Poster is doing through a devoted network of volunteers is absolutely heartwarming. So if you'd like to help, Poster is in the middle of their annual fundraiser right now, 
trying to hit a goal of $20,000, and it would mean the world to me if you'd consider helping us get there. All you got to do is visit southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. That's right, southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. Over the years, Charleston, South Carolina, has somehow garnered the nickname Holy City, a moniker that some say comes from the town's early devotion to religious freedom and diversity. A legacy that they believe is evidenced by the presence of a large number of historic churches of every denomination. But according to Dr. Nick Butler, a historian at the Charleston Public Library, this is, quote, simply a myth. The name is a product of 20th century marketing. But y'all know what it's like in old cities like Charleston who just celebrated its 350th birthday. Legends and lore start in one place as one thing and then evolve within the fabric of a community only to emerge as an accepted part of its history, even if it lacks truth. After all, visitors to the peninsula will in fact find an exceptionally large number of historic churches. So it seems real, right? Well, don't forget, all those churches also mean that there's an exceptionally large number of historic graveyards. And as much as folks might claim Charleston to be a holy city, I bet you're likely more familiar with its notoriety as a haunted one. This reputation is so profound that St. Philip's Episcopal Church has a sign out front directly addressing its own ghostly reputation, stating simply, the only ghost at St. Philip's is the Holy Ghost. Now, that hasn't stopped Charleston's tour guides from bringing visitors there at night, entertaining out-of-towners with tales of the supernatural. But this particular cemetery is in no way the only one with haunted history. Just a few years back, Fox 24 local news interviewed Mike Brown, a veteran tour guide and host of the Pleasing Terrors podcast. Brown told the interviewer quite frankly, quote, The Unitarian Graveyard is one of my favorite spots in the city. This cemetery is located only three blocks from St. Philip's, and it is a truly one-of-a-kind graveyard. Unlike most burying grounds, which are neatly kept and maintained as a sign of respect for the dead, this one is intentionally left to be overtaken by nature. A plaque outside facing Archdale Street explains the unique decision. Since 1837, plants and trees have grown in a wild but cultivated fashion among the numerous tombstones in this Unitarian churchyard. Caroline Howard Gilman, the wife of Pastor Samuel Gilman, 
created a garden cemetery in the European and English traditions of churchyards, creating a place for quiet reflection and recreation and habitat for local plant species. The grounds are meant to be a botanical treasure that also reflects the Unitarian mission to respect the interdependent web of all existence. The result is a stunning historic cemetery where azaleas, crepe myrtles, and wildflowers grow naturally amidst two century-old tombstones, all nestled away under the cover of moss-draped oak trees. Many of the headstones are weathered and overgrown with moss, but the cemetery's paths are kept clear for visitors to explore its secluded corners and either take respite from the outside world or pay their respect to the people who are interred there. But while I can personally attest that this exquisite burying ground is quite a sight to behold during the day, under the moonlight, it has an entirely different feel. And as folks who've dared meander through its wrought iron gates at night will attest, the Unitarian Church Cemetery might just be Charleston's most haunted. Mike Brown told Fox 24 a little bit about this, stating, quote, it has a long history of weird sightings occurring here, going back at least to the 1990s, probably much further back than that. Most of them involve seeing a young woman in a white dress, and she's been seen walking through various parts of the graveyard. Mike continues on to say that he's had a number of tour groups standing outside of the gates, peering into the cemetery at night, only to come face to face with his apparition, a woman in white standing there in the darkness. But Brown isn't the only Charleston guide to claim such experiences. In 2018, Live 5 WCSC News interviewed Randy Neal, a senior tour guide for Tour Charleston. He too claimed that over his many years taking visitors to the cemetery, he has had a number of similar experiences. The best description is from the guests on the tour. They put it this way. There was a woman in a wedding dress standing behind you while you were speaking. And this has happened several dozen times. Now, in full transparency, I will admit that I have in fact been a guest on Mike Brown's Pleasing Terrors tour. And so I've personally stood in front of the wrought iron gates on King Street and listened to Mike talk about some of the many personal experiences that Charleston locals have entrusted him with over the years. Stories that he shares night after night. But the most important part of the stop is what he follows that up with. The legend of who that young woman actually is. According to local lore, the Lady in White is the apparition of a young woman named Anna Ravenel, the daughter of an affluent Charleston gentleman. Well, one day while Anna was visiting family out on Sullivan's Island, she met a soldier named Edgar Perry. Perry was a good-looking and intelligent man, and Anna was beautiful and sweet, so of course the pair fell in love. 
and in no time at all, the young soldier asked for Anna's hand in marriage, a proposal to which she did not hesitate to accept. Unfortunately, love is never as easy as it seems when we're young, and when it came to Edgar and Anna, that's quite the understatement, because not only did the young woman's parents not approve of the penniless soldier, but they had already made plans to have her marry the eldest son of another wealthy Charleston family. Her future had been decided, and Private Perry was in no way to be a part of it. So Anna was forbidden to return to Sullivan's Island, where Perry was stationed, and she was told point-blank by her father that she was no longer allowed to see that young man. But again, this was young love, the kind that burned so bright Nothing could stop them from finding a way to be together, which is exactly what they did. During his time off, Perry began making regular visits to the city, where the lovers secretly met in one of the most secluded but romantic places that Anna could possibly think of, the beautiful, overgrown cemetery at the Unitarian Church, where her mother's family owned a plot. There, behind the tall brick walls and wrought iron gates, Edgar and Anna met regularly for secret rendezvous under the cover of those moss-draped oak trees. That is, until one day, they were discovered. As you can expect, Anna's father was furious. He immediately confined her to the family home and headed straight to Fort Moultrie, where he spoke with Perry's commanding officer, who promised the prominent Charlestonian that the soldier would henceforth not be allowed to leave the island, and therefore no longer capable of interfering in the Ravenel's life. You can only imagine what this did to those two young lovers the heartache that they were forced to endure over the following weeks as they were confined to their respective homes with no way to communicate or express their love. But if that pain was not great enough, worse was yet to come. (coughs) After several weeks had passed, Anna fell seriously ill. The family's doctor was called, and every attempt was made to nurse the young woman back to health. But absolutely nothing could be done. And ultimately, one night, Anna drew her last breath. Her final wish before she died was that they bury her in the Unitarian Church Cemetery the only place where she had ever felt like she was truly alive. Fortunately, her family respected these wishes, but when Perry found out the horrific news about his beloved Anna, he raced to the cemetery only to find out that her father had committed one final act of vengeance. You see, he knew he couldn't stop Perry from visiting the graveyard, but what he could do is hide the place where his daughter was laid to rest. So not only did Ravenel vindictively leave Anna's plot bare 
of any headstone or marking. He also had six separate graves dug, knowing full well that when the young man arrived to mourn his daughter, he'd have absolutely no way of knowing which one was actually hers. Edgar Perry would never be able to properly tell his love goodbye. For this reason, it's absolutely no wonder why Anna's spirit continues to stroll along the paths of that overgrown graveyard, mourning a life that would have been filled with love had it not been stolen from her by her father. Charleston-based author Christopher Bird Downey chronicled some of the local lore surrounding the apparition. Those who've seen and pursued the ghost through the graveyard have described the girl walking behind a gravestone and seemingly disappearing. Some young male witnesses have described the girl walking eyes with them, seemingly transfixed on just the individual and unaware of anyone else in a tour group. But most alarming is the report that some visitors to the graveyard have lost consciousness, overwhelmed by the site's paranormal energy. One tour guy even supposedly quit his job because of the fright he experienced at the graveyard. Heartbroken and lost between the worlds of the living and the dead, she wanders from her grave, still wearing her white wedding dress, in search of her lost love. Now y'all, while this tale is certainly filled with enough tragedy and loss to be a legend in just about any town in America, there's one final aspect that makes it truly befitting of a place with as rich of a history as Charleston, South Carolina. You see, that young soldier named Edgar Perry, who was stationed out on Sullivan's Island? Well, according to Mike Brown, quote, it was discovered in 1885 that Edgar A. Perry was not his real name, that it was actually an assumed name for Edgar Allan Poe, who had enlisted in the army to escape some gambling debts. As for the woman, well, according to local lore, she's the one and only Annabelle Lee. It was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabelle Lee. And this maiden, she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child and she was a child. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or call she, the police. Or call the police like <laughs> she should have, exactly. 
quickly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then from beneath the Hollywood sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On November 18, 1827, Edgar Allan Poe arrived in Charleston Harbor aboard the brig Waltham after a nearly two-week journey down the eastern coast. Poe had enlisted in the army the previous spring and spent the summer training at Fort Independence in Boston before his unit, Battery H of the Army's 1st Regiment of Artillery, was sent to South Carolina to relieve the garrison posted at Fort Moultrie. Moultrie sits on the western edge of Sullivan's Island and for years served as Charleston Harbor's first line of defense, playing a role in both the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. Pona's units spent a little over a year stationed at Fort Moultrie, and as a result, we can only assume that he spent some of his time off in the nearby city. After all, Sullivan's Island was hardly occupied by anyone back when Poe lived there, and it certainly didn't have much to offer a young soldier in terms of entertainment. Poe himself described the island's conditions during those early years of the 19th century in a short story, The Gold Bug, published in 1843, over a decade after he returned to civilian life. This island is a very singular one. It consists of little else than the sea sand and is about three miles long. Its breadth at no point exceeds a quarter of a mile. It is separated from the mainland by a scarcely perceptible creek, oozing its way through a wilderness of reeds and slime, a favorite resort of the marten. The vegetation, as might be supposed, is scant, or at least dwarfish. No trees of any magnitude are to be seen. Near the western extremity, where Fort Maltree stands, and where are some miserable frame buildings tenanted during summer by the fugitives from Charleston dust and fever, may be found, indeed, the bristly palmetto. But the whole island, with the exception of this western point, 
and a line of hard white beach on the seacoast is covered with a dense undergrowth of the sweet myrtle, so much prized by the horticulturists of England. The shrub here often attains the height of 15 or 20 feet and forms an almost impenetrable coppice, burthening the air with its fragrance. So yeah, there wasn't much on the island for a young soldier to do in his downtime. And as I said, it's very possible that the young soldier regularly made his way into Charleston for entertainment, which certainly could have included romance. But did it? Did a young Edgar Allan Poe really fall in love with Anna Ravenel? Or is that merely local lore? Well, honestly, we don't really have any way of actually verifying it if he did. And as author Christopher Bird Downey writes in his book, Edgar Allan Poe's Charleston, the poet and author did everything he could do to hide his time at Fort Moultrie. To say that tracing and documenting Poe's time while stationed at Fort Moultrie is a challenge would be an understatement. Because throughout his life, Poe himself desperately tried to hide his stint in the army. Poe remained resolutely elusive in interviews and biographical sketches about his army years, and he seemed more than happy to perpetuate the false narratives of his rumored adventures abroad in Greece and Russia. Poe's enlistment itself was even part of this deception. While attending the University of Virginia, the young author acquired quite a few gambling debts, and after his adopted father, John Allen, refused to help him, Poe needed cash. So, on a whim, he signed up for a five-year stint in the United States Army's 1st Regiment of Artillery. And it was right from the start that he covered his tracks, enlisting under the name of Edgar A. Perry, and claiming that his age was 22 when he was actually only 18. Poe only lasted two years, though, as with the help of John Allen's considerable influence, Poe was able to enter the United States Military Academy at West Point in 1830. Now, as you can expect from the characterizations you've probably seen of Edgar Allan Poe, the young author wasn't exactly one for discipline. So his time at West Point didn't last long either, but that's for another story. All we really need to understand here is that we just don't know much about what he did while he was in the army. And the author, clearly wanted it that way. Nowhere is this fact more clear than in his obituary and the way that Griswold portrayed the time between Poe's hasty exit from the University of Virginia to his admittance as a cadet at West Point. Mr. Allen refused to pay some of his debris of honor and he hastily quitted the country on a quixotic expedition to join the Greeks, then struggling for liberty. He did not reach his original destination, however, but made his way to St. Petersburg in Russia when he became involved in difficulties, from which he was extricated by the late Mr. Henry Middleton, the American minister at that capital. He returned home in 1829 and immediately afterward entered the military academy at West Point. Poe did such a good job covering up his army enlistment that, as Mike Brown said earlier, it wasn't until 1885 that his enlistment was made public in George E. Woodbury's biography of him, which was included in the book, American Men of Letters. 
Yet, as we frequently find here on Southern Gothic, when there's a lack of documentation, speculation and lore step in to fill that void. And this is what seems to have happened here in the purported romance between Edgar and Anna. According to local lore, while Poe was stationed at Moultrie, he struck up a friendship with Dr. Edmund Ravenel, who taught at the Medical College of South Carolina and practiced medicine in Charleston, but spent his summers on Sullivan's Island. It's believed that it was during one of those summers when the 30-year-old doctor met Poe and the two bonded over a mutual interest, collecting seashells. If this did in fact happen, and the pair became close as the legend suggests, well then it's certainly possible that the young soldier met the doctor's visiting niece, Anna Ravenel. But again, there's no real evidence that this happened, even if it was possible. However, Downey notes in Edgar Allan Post Charleston that in spite of the fact that he couldn't find any, quote, hard documentation of a connection between Ravenel and Poe, Charlestonians claim that Poe's short story, The Goldbug, is proof enough, as the parallels between the character William Legrand and the real-life doctor are far too close to be coincidence. First published in 1843, The Gold Bug was an instant success and was awarded the gold medal for fiction by the Baltimore Saturday Visitor. Combining mystery and cryptography, the story follows an unnamed narrator who visits his friend William Legrand at his home on Sullivan's Island. Legrand, much like Ravenel, is a wealthy and brilliant gentleman of, quote, an ancient Huguenot family who finds a strange gold-colored beetle in a tree, captures it, and discovers a secret message that leads to a treasure hunt. There are, of course, other parallels that suggest the doctor's influence on the tale, but unfortunately, there are really only two people who can confirm if a real-life friendship developed or not, and one of them was buried on that gloomy October day in 1848. But this, of course, has not stopped folks in the Low Country from claiming Annabelle Lee as their own, whether there is proof or not. Christopher Bird Downey believes that the legend first took root in 1969, the product of a student at the College of Charleston and a professor who had a deep interest in Poe's connection to the city. Charleston reporter Jack Leland described their efforts a decade later. The idea had its conception back in 1969 when a romantic liberal arts student from the College of Charleston and the Austrian who translated Winnie the Pooh into Latin found a small tombstone in the Unitarian Church Cemetery along the Gateway Garden Walk. And so the trail began until on one crisp spring morning when the snowdrops and jonquils were blooming in profusion in the cemetery, the Poe cult came upon the perfect tombstone. It has only the initials A-L-R, with no dates to prove historically embarrassing. Since Poe was a friend of the Ravenel family, certainly one of Charleston's highborn clan, that surname was seized upon after the Poe posse went through such also highborn seps as Rutledge, Rupel, Rhett, River, and Roper, all beginning with the letter R. 
Of course, this alone wasn't enough to make the legend stick in the same way that Charleston's moniker of Holy City has. As we frequently see in ghost lore all over the South, a legend truly takes hold when it moves from oral tradition to the written word. And that's what happened here in 1969, when a map of the location of that questionable tombstone was included in a reprinted edition of The Gold Bug, henceforth cementing the tale of Annabelle Lee in Charleston lore. But this, of course, leaves us with one final question. If Charleston was not, in fact, the, quote, kingdom by the sea, which Poe wrote about, then who was his Annabelle Lee? And this was the reason that, long ago, in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling a beautiful Annabelle According to Griswold, quote, nearly all that he wrote in the last two or three years, including much of his best poetry, was in some sense biographical. And Griswold heartily believed that Annabelle Lee fell into this tradition, introducing the poem in Poe's obituary with the preface that, quote, there are perhaps some of our readers who will understand the illusions of the following beautiful poem. Unfortunately, when it comes to Edgar Allan Poe, there are a lot of women that he could have written about, and several of them came forward after his death claiming that they were the inspiration for the poem. Now y'all, I'm gonna try and walk you through some of these women, but I will be honest, Poe was quite complicated when it came to love. His mother Eliza passed when he was only three, and his foster mother, Frances Allen, was frequently ill through much of his childhood, eventually passing away while he was a student at the University of Virginia. As a result, it seems that this maternal trauma fueled a lot of his issues, at least based on the biased characterizations of him that we have today. And these later years of his life certainly seem to confirm them. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we, and neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. Griswold seemed to believe that Annabelle Lee was inspired by poet Sarah Helen Whitman, of whom Poe was engaged to about a year before his death. Whitman's mother did not approve of the union and only agreed to be on board with it if the notoriously drunk author sobered up, which he did, at least for a month. But when he fell off the wagon, purportedly the night before the wedding, according to Griswold, Whitman stopped speaking to him. Later, she wrote a poem seeking to reunite, and in her mind, she believed it possible that Annabelle Lee might be Poe's response to that letter. Yet rumor has it, Poe was already engaged to another woman by the time this happened, Elmira Royster Shelton. The pair had known each other since childhood, but it wasn't until both Poe and Shelton were widowed that a romantic interest seemed to blossom, and rumor has it that they were supposed to be married 10 days after his death. In 1885, Dr. Moran, who cared for Poe on his final days, published a manuscript in defense of the poet and the mischaracterization by folks like Griswold. In this work, Shelton claims that she was the inspiration 
for Annabelle Lee. Still, there was yet another woman to make the claim. A poet named Sarah Anna Lewis said that Poe's mother-in-law told her she was the real Annabelle Lee. Now, this one is pretty unlikely, as her relationship with the deceased was mainly that her wealthy husband paid for nice reviews from him. But after Poe's death, Shelton took in his mother-in-law, and as a result, the woman probably wanted to be in her good graces. And what better way to do that than tell her that she inspired Edgar Allan Poe's final work? In the end, though, most literary historians agree that none of these women were Annabelle Lee. After all, they were still alive when he wrote it, and the poem is one of mourning for a beautiful, youthful woman. A woman like Virginia Eliza Clem Poe, the author's deceased wife. And so, all the night tide, I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride, in the sepulcher there by the sea, in her tomb by the sounding sea. The pair were married in 1836, but Virginia contracted tuberculosis only several years later. And after five years of suffering from this horrific disease, she died in 1847. Poe's friend and fellow author Francis Osgood, who knew Virginia, was adamant that there really was no other woman who could have possibly inspired Edgar Allan Poe's final poem. She wrote, Of this, I cannot speak too earnestly, too warmly. I believe she was the only woman whom he ever truly loved, and this is evidenced by the exquisite pathos of the little poem lately written called Annabelle Lee, of which she was a subject, and which is by far the most natural, simple, tender, and touchingly beautiful of all of his songs. I have heard it said that it was intended to illustrate a late love affair of the author, but they who believe this have in their own dullness evidently misunderstood or missed the beautiful meaning latent in the most lovely of all of its verses, where he says, a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabelle Lee, so that her high-born kinsman came and bore her away from me to shut her up in a sepulchre in this kingdom by the sea. While the inspiration for Edgar Allan Poe's final work might not be the daughter of one of Charleston's most prominent families. It certainly hasn't stopped visitors to the Unitarian Church's graveyard from coming face to face with the Lady in White, an apparition who continues to float through the wild, overgrown graveyard, no matter who you believe her to be. A mystery with a type of deep roots that can only be found in a historic place like the city of Charleston. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic.
Southern Gothic is an independent podcast produced by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksneider for Southern Gothic Media. This week's episode was researched, written, produced, and edited by Brandon Schecksneider. Additional voiceovers were performed by Forrest Burgess of the podcast Astonishing Legends, Gavin Whitehead, the host of The Art of Crime, and Jennifer Flanders of the Our True Crime podcast. If you're a fan of the show and would like more content, then consider becoming a premium subscriber on either the Apple Podcast app or Spotify. There you'll get access to both ad-free and monthly bonus episodes. But most of all, if you enjoyed today's show and would like to see some images and video from these Charleston locations like the Unitarian Church Cemetery, Sullivan's Island, or even Fort Moultrie, then become a Patreon supporter today for access to that and more. Links are in the show notes. And y'all, as always, thanks for listening. Lucky Little Shacks. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real, or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts.